Welcome to the Warriors of Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. Warriors of Grace is about helping men from generation to generation become gospel men in private, in the home, in the church, and in public through the Word of God. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Warriors of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this podcast. And today we continue our study, uh, Snapshots of Grace. So far we've looked at uh, 1 Timothy 2 and then we walked through Hebrews 11 and 12. and, And now we've been working our way through Galatians 5 and 6. And we're going to finish Galatians 5 today. So if you have your copy of God's Word, as always, please open it to go today to Galatians 5, 19 uh, through 26. Galatians 5, 19 through 26. And hear what the Word of God has to say to us today. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the reading of God's precious Word. You know, our, our text here today, uh, in, on our chapter in Galatians 5, it closes with a contrast. In verses 19 to 21, it describes a fruitless existence of the flesh or the sinful nature. And the verses that follow describe the fruitful and the productive work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. You see, the contrast is here because it's, it's, the, it's the difference between life and death. Paul has already explained that the flesh and the spirit are mortal enemies locked in deadly combat. The passions of the sinful flesh are at war with the regenerate nature. And this warfare takes place in the in the heart and the soul and the mind of the Christian. In this conflict, the Christian is ordered to live by the Spirit rather than indulge the flesh. And, and to follow these orders that Paul lays out, we have to know the difference between the flesh and the Spirit, between the sinful nature and the regenerate nature. And, and it's not long that Paul takes to explain these things. In fact, in verses 19 through 21, he tells us, outright when he says now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy 
Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. Now, catalogs like these were, were not uh, unknown to the Galatians. They would have encountered them before. They are all throughout the New Testament, and, and many classical writers have given them as well. But the thing is, is that no two lists are the same in the Bible or in pagan literature. In fact, these lists and what they contain require little by way of explanation. The catalog begins with sexual immorality, which is also known as fornication. This term was used to refer to any kind of sexual sin, but especially to sexual intercourse between persons who are not married to one another. Sect, uh, sexual sin was common in the pagan world, as was impurity, which refers not only to sexual sin, but to any kind of uncleanliness. And sensuality is indecency, a lack of respect for what is right and good. It involves not only engaging in wanton behavior, but flaunting it in public. Idolatry means the worship of other gods. It is the quest to find our identity and security in anything or anything else other than the true God. Witchcraft or sorcery is the worship of what is evil. And this includes contemporary forms of the occult, such as black magic and Satan worship. However, the Greek word that is used here for witchcraft, pharmakia, it, it provides the origin for the English word pharmacy. And so this is a reminder to us today that in the ancient world, witches often prepared and administered lethal poisons. And thus the postmodern parallels to ancient witchcraft include abortion and euthanasia, forms of killing that in our culture are usually performed by doctors. And yet according to scripture, these activities are among the self-evidently wicked deeds of the flesh. Now, many of the other vices on Paul's list relate to the breakdown of the Christian community. And thus, they can confirm what we've already grown to suspect, namely that divisiveness was a major problem for the Galatian church. In fact, the Greek word for enmity, echothria, is closely related to the Greek word for enemy, echothios. And so this form of hatred, it includes any kind of political, racial, or even religious hostility, whether in public or in private. In fact, strife is rivalry or discord, and it, it comes from a quarrelsome spirit. And jealousy is the wrong kind of zeal, such as Paul had before he became a Christian. It leads to fits of anger, the, the rage-filled outbursts that come from having a bad temper. Aristotle compared this term to dogs that bark if there's but a, a knock at the door before looking to see if it is a friend. And the list goes on and on. For the sinful nature produces seemingly endless variety of sins. And some people want to get ahead at the expense of others. They want to do whatever they can. These people are guilty of rivalries. And others taking side, causing dissensions and division. In fact, the English word for heresy, it comes from the term for division, heresias. And indeed, the theological air that, that invades the church as a clear separation must be made between true and false doctrine. So what are some other things that Paul talks about here? People tend to be unhappy when others succeed, and the proper term for such a grudging spirit is envy. Socrates once said that the envious are pained by their friends' successes. 
And so to give a more contemporary example, Envy is a vice depicted in the cartoon that features a dog sitting at a, at a bar and saying, it's not just that dogs have to win, but cats have to lose. And so whenever we rejoice at the misfortunes of others, including our friends, we are guilty of envy. And finally, there are two more sins of the body, drinking to excess and eating to excess, drunkenness and orgies. We need to be clear here that the Bible does not prohibit alcohol any more than it prohibits food, but it always condemns getting drunk. And so the term used here refers to drinking bouts, what people today would call getting wasted. The orgies to which Paul refers to were not simply sexual, they were involved wild partying of all kinds, including revels held at pagan temples. And later in the chapter, the apostle adds several more sins to this list in verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is about spiritual pride, the work of the flesh that destroys fellowship. If the proud think that they are superior, they provoke others, they put them down, they, they, they make other people feel inferior. They envy others and they resent their success. They destroy relationships. It's quite the list. It includes social sins and sexual sins, sins of the body, the soul, sins common among Christians, as well as pagans. And Paul ends his catalog with things like these to show that he could keep going on and on. But his point has less to do with any particular sin than it does with the entire lifestyle that these acts of the flesh represent. You see, the only thing the sinful nature can provoke and produce is an unchaste, unholy, uncharitable, and undisciplined life. This is plain for anyone and for all to see. The sinfulness of the sinful nature is so obvious as to be self-evident, partly because we have all committed so many of these deeds ourselves. In fact, the Puritan William Perkins once said that this list of vices is a mirror to reveal the corruption of our own hearts. And what Paul says next is most alarming. Having listed the deeds of the flesh, he goes on to warn where they naturally lead or where they do not lead. In verse 21, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this sounds to us like an echo from the teaching of Jesus, who had a great deal to say about the coming of his kingdom. And what Paul means here is the kingdom, by the kingdom, is God's final kingdom, the place of his eternal rule, namely heaven. And so to inherit God's kingdom is to come into its rightful possession by receiving the free gift of eternal life in Christ alone. And Paul had warned the Galatians about this. He told them that good works cannot get them into heaven. Evil deeds can certainly keep them out of it. People who perform the acts of the sinful flesh will not inherit eternal life. And it's significant here that he refers to the deeds of the sinful flesh as the works of the flesh. This is a reminder that our works cannot save. Whether they are works of the law, works of the flesh, or any other kind of works, they do not lead to heaven. But we need to ask the question here, and it's an important one. Does this mean that anyone who is guilty of any of the vices that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 19-21 is going to hell? Well, certainly anyone who commits these sins deserves to go there. And for this reason, we should not think likely of these or any other sins. 
But remember here that the Christian, even the spirit-filled Christian, still has indwelling sin. And from time to time, even believers commit these very sins. And with this in mind, it's important to know that when Paul refers to those who do such things in verse 21, the Greek verb prosanasis indicates habitual action, not an occasional lapse. Paul's not talking here about Christians who from time to time commit one of these sins against their better judgment, all the while knowing that they are grieving the Holy Spirit and wishing they could stop. He is talking about people whose lives are dominated and enslaved by sin, who are committed at, at, at the heart and the soul level to immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and envy. And this is not the kind of life that leads to heaven. It's the opposite life. Why would someone who loves to break God's rules even want to go where God's rule is kept? You see, people who make a regular practice of vice need to repent of their sins and leave their old lifestyle behind lest they fall under the final judgment. But what about Christians who feel perhaps even some justification? Maybe you do as a Christian man. They're dominated by such an addictive sin such as pornography or other things. You see, men, we need to heed Paul's warning here that anyone who lives this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that you should despair either. The very fact that you are concerned about your spiritual condition today shows that the Spirit is at work in you and that he will enable you to live a life that is more and more pleasing to God. And there, and there is a reason why the flesh produces such bad behavior. It's simply doing what comes naturally, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 12 continuing saying, either, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You see, the sinful nature produces sin because it was a bad tree to start with. The spirit, by contrast, is a good tree producing lush and abundant virtue. Galatians 5, 22-23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the greatest of these, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3 says, is love, which is the highest of all the virtues and the foundation for all of godliness. You see, love is not one virtue among a, a list of virtues, but the sum of the substance of what it means to be a Christian. And the Greek word used here for love, agape, it's, 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 it has been patented, if you will, by the writers of the New Testament. It's a kind of selfless, sacrificial affection that enables us to serve one another. And love is also what we return to God, who first loved us through the sufferings of his son, Jesus Christ, and then poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5 says. And then comes joy, which is not so much happiness as contentment. You see, joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. It's not, therefore, a spontaneous response to some temporary pleasure. It does not depend on circumstances at all. It's based on rejoicing in one's eternal identity in Jesus Christ. And when joy comes peace, a sense of wholeness and well-being. John MacArthur says this, If joy speaks of the exhilaration of the heart that comes from being right with God, then peace refers to the tranquility of mind that comes from saving relationships. 
and such tranquility may be enjoyed by God and by others. Romans 5.1 says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And since we have peace with God, we can have peace with other people. And like peace, the next several virtues bring harmony to human relationships. Patience is long-suffering in the face of hardship, the ability to endure through adversity. A patient person has a slow fuse. He or she is steadfast, persistent, willing to suffer, suffer aggravation or even persecution without complaint. Kindness is more than a random act of consideration. It's a constant readiness to help the extension of God's grace to people around us through practical actions of caring. And closely related to it is goodness, which was a common general term for virtue among the pagans. It, it means moral excellence. Here it is sanctified by the Holy Spirit and indicates a willingness to be generous. And next comes faithfulness, the trustworthiness that comes from trusting in the God of the Bible. The faithful person is reliable for important tasks, loyal to friends and dependable in emergencies. With faithfulness goes gentleness and inward grace that is called meekness and is often described as power under control. You see, the gentle person has a sweet temper of spirit towards God, towards others, towards the daily frustrations of life. They're not prone to anger, but humble, sweet, and mild. And finally, there's self-control, which means temperance or moderation, especially in sensual matters like eating, drinking, and sex. This sober virtue pre prevents liberty from becoming licensed in the Christian life. A person with self-control has the restraint and the self-discipline not to be ruled by passion and is therefore able to resist temptation. And this catalog of spiritual virtues we need to understand is not exhaustive. Paul hints at this when he refers to the fruit of the Spirit as such things in verse 23. You see, some graces are not on this list, such as hope or godliness. They appear elsewhere in the New Testament. And once again, the point is not so much the specific character traits as it is the entire lifestyle they represent. All the graces of the Holy Spirit belong together, which explains why the word fruit occurs in the singular here. The fruit of the Spirit is, is one whose spirit, whole spiritual life is rooted in the one Spirit of God. To change, the, change this for a moment, these virtues are not nine different gems, but nine different facets of the same dazzling jewel. Spiritual fruit is different from spiritual gifts in this respect, since most Christians have only a handful of gifts, but, but one does not pick and choose among spiritual fruit the way it sorts through fruits and vegetables in the supermarket. There is only one fruit which every Christian produces, albeit in varying quantities, and with different degrees of sweetness. And the contrast between the special produce of the Holy Spirit and the bitter fruit of the sinful nature could not be sharper. The fruit of the Spirit is the very opposite of the work of the flesh. And so when it comes to godliness, the Spirit really produces. You see that he brings forth good fruit from a good tree, the product of a whole new nature in Christ alone. And one helpful way to study this passage is to contrast the fruit of the Spirit with the, what, what's called the weeds of the devil. Each fruit has its opposite, a weed that tries to choke it out. In fact, many of the weeds grow in Paul's list of vices here in this text. The weed that tries to choke 
out love is enmity. Dissension stunts the growth of peace. Patience is crowded out by anger. The weed that grows around self-control is sensuality and so on and so forth. And so another way to study the fruit of the Spirit is to compare it to the character of God. Love, peace, goodness, faithfulness. You see, these are all divine attributes. We see them displayed in the work of God the Son, who is patient in suffering, faithful to his disciples, gentle with his children, and loving in his kindness to sinners. You see, the Holy Spirit seeks to connect us to the vine, and he seeks to produce Christ himself in us. We do not grow this fruit, though, on our own. This is why it's called the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the Spirit. You see, the fruit of the Spirit is a natural product of his gracious inward influence in our lives. The spontaneous and inevitable result of uniting us in union with Jesus Christ. It's going to take time, but grow it must, for God will make it grow. And what we must do in the meantime is cultivate fruit in our lives. And notice that this is a catalog of virtues rather than a list of rules. And this is why Paul ends in verse 23 saying, Against such things there is no law. This is a deliberate understatement here. The reason there is no law against these virtues is that they're positively lawful. And the people who produce them fulfill the law. This does not mean that the Spirit issues a command for every situation. If we think of this list as a how-to guide for the Christian life, we're in danger of slipping back into legalism, into works righteousness. Remember, we're not under the law. The Spirit is not lawless. His liberty does not lead to license. Instead, He works into those dispositions that lead to godliness. His fruit is the habit of the heart that produces a rich harvest of loving obedience. And the life in the Spirit produces in us, it conforms to the very law that cannot justify us. You see, in time it becomes almost natural to live in the Spirit, except that it's really supernatural to do so. G.I. Packer says this, Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen men, just as sin is the naturalness of the spiritually dead man. And in pursuing holiness by obeying God, the Christian actually follows the deepest urgings of his own renewed being. I love that. We do not have to live like legalists to fulfill the law. What we need, friends, is the Holy Spirit. Well, if this is not already convicting enough, and it is, trust me, it is, the Holy Spirit does not produce fruit in the Christian without cooperation. And there are two things every Christian must do to remain fruitful. Every Christian man should be concerned about their influence, their impact. But we cannot even begin to talk about those things until we talk about this subject here today. The first is to mortify the flesh. Verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Mortification is one of the most neglected doctrines of the Christian faith, but it's also one of the most vital. Spiritual growth cannot happen without it. Mortification is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6.11 when he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin. It simply means putting to sin to death what the Puritan William Ames called the wasting away of sin. And as we've seen it, the Spirit of God is engaged in mortal combat with the flesh. 
See, the desires of the regenerate man rage war against the passions of the sinful nature. And in this war, there will be no truce. This spiritual nature cannot enter into peace negotiations with the sinful nature, nor can it surrender. The spirit must battle sin to the death. And therefore, when the spirit captures the flesh, he does not simply hold it as a prisoner. He commits the ultimate act of war. The spirit puts the sinful nature to death. And not just any death. The means of execution is crucifixion. This is how John Stott says it. To take up the cross was our Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to, be, to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. And now Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and nail it to the cross. Now consider how appropriate it is for the sinful nature to be crucified. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. It's reserved for hardened criminals, men, for traitors, for murderers, the scum of society. But what is more shameful than the sinful nature, which rebels against God and murders the human soul? See, crucifixion was a painful way to die, as, as painful as a means of execution as human beings have ever devised. It's excruciating in the full and the proper sense of the word. In the, in the similar way, the mortification of sin is painful. It's not painful to the body, but to the soul. And the reason sanctification is such a painful process is that there's always something excruciating about putting our sin to death. Our sinful nature loves our sin so much that it hopes that we will not do this. See, crucifixion was a gradual way to die, but, but its victims often lingered on the cross for days before they drew their lost breath. <coughs> You see, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross. They are determined to keep it there until they expire. And when it comes to eliminating sin, there are no shortcuts, only a long, slow, painful death. And the last thing about crucifixion is that it's final. Those who were crucified may have died slowly, but they, they always died eventually. Because soldiers ensured that the victims were not taken down from their crosses until they were really dead. And the same is true in the spirit's war against the flesh. You see, God is not fighting a losing battle here. The sinful nature has already received its mortal death blow. And the spirit will see to it that it remains on the cross until it expires. The, not, the question is not if it will die, but only when it will die. Sin received this death blow on the cross. And we find that the death of our own sinful nature and the death of Christ through what J.I. Packer calls a crow crucifixion with Jesus Christ. And there's a connection here between Galatians 5.24 and Galatians 2.20. But notice one very important difference. In chapter 2, we are crucified. In chapter 5, we do the crucifying. In verse 24, it says, And those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. And this verse describes a crucifixion carried out by those who are literally of Christ. In other words, God's own people are the executioners. And since when, since 
the verb is expressed in the past tense, we know this event has already taken place. You see, we are crucified, a sinful nature, at our conversion when we came to faith in Christ. And at that time, we went to Calvary, where Christ was crucified. There we were united to him in his death, and we put our trust in him. It was not only to die for our sins, but also to put our sins to death. The cross of Christ means death to our flesh. The trouble is that our sinful nature has a way of trying to climb back down from the cross, and when it does, it is able to make a remarkably speedy recovery, partly because we always have a way of helping it. We are sometimes tempted to remove the nails, help our old sinful nature down from the cross, and nurse it back to life and health. And this is why we're so often struggling with besetting sins, sins that we so often commit, they become bad habits. Yet this has to stop, men. Do not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way Jesus treated it at Calvary. Mortify your sinful nature. Put it to death. And from time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, say, oh, no, you don't. Don't try to climb down from there. Get back up on the cross where you belong. And then the pound the nails a little deeper. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have crucified your sinful nature with its all of its selfish desires. Do not try to resuscitate your sinful nature. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. You see, there are two sides to sanctification in a Christian life. One is mortification, the putting to death of the sinful nature. The other is vivification, the coming to life of the regenerate nature. At the same time, we're putting our, our flesh to death. We are being revived by the Holy Spirit. These two aspect, aspects of sanctification, mortification, and vivification go together. And this brings up the second thing that the Christian must do to remain faithful. is to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In this verse, as Paul so often does, he, he follows an indicative what Christ has done with an imperative, what we are to do, and he tells us to become what we are. In fact, the fact is this, that those who belong to Jesus live in the Spirit. Every generation, the Holy Spirit enters the heart of every Christian, and yet we must keep on living in the Spirit, which is precisely what the Galatians were failing to do. And Paul had already asked them in Galatians 3.3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? By starting and then stopping in this way, the Galatians had fallen out of step with God's way. And when the apostle speaks of keeping in step, he is really talking about keeping orders. The Greek term for keeping in step comes from the military. It means to stay in formation. First soldiers would line up in ranks and files, and then in order to maintain good military discipline, they would stay in line as they march. You see, soldiers not only march in formation, they also run in formation. And when they do, there's only one thing they have to worry about, <coughs> which is to keep in step. They do not need to worry about where they're going or how they're going to get there. They do not need to guess how much farther they have to go. Their commanding officer is going to give them their orders as necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know is how to keep in step in time. 
And it's the same thing in the Christian life today. The Holy Spirit is God's drill sergeant. It's his job to keep us in line. He, he barks out the cadence. All we have to do is keep our place in line and formation, running in step with his commands. And this also shows us how we're to be in relationship with other Christians. We do not run alone. Our brothers and sisters are there beside us, and we're matching them stride for stride. As long as we maintain good discipline, there will, there will not be any pushing or shoving in the ranks. The kind of provoking and envy that Paul warns about in Galatians 5.26. Instead, by staying in formation, we will maintain our unity in the Spirit. You see, a good unit never leaves one of its men behind. If a soldier stops running because of injury, discouragement, or fatigue, his, bodies, his buddies will circle around and gather him back to his unit. And so also the church, we are called to maintain unity by going back to those who have fallen. Keep in step, it takes discipline, but that's what it takes in our spiritual growth. You see, the Holy Spirit rarely works in extraordinary ways. Instead, he uses the ordinary means of grace to bring spiritual growth. The reading and preaching of God's word, the sacrament of baptism and communion, and the life of prayer. And contrary to what many Christians today believe, true spiritual growth does not come from some special experience of the Holy Spirit. It comes by walking with the Spirit every day until finally keeping in step with Him becomes a holy habit. J.I. Packer says this, that holiness by habit is not self-sanctification by self-effort, but it's simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's methods and then keeping in step with Him. See, this is how to grow good spiritual fruits. The more we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, through the Word, the sacraments, and prayer, the more faithful and the more fruitful we become. And you know what? As men, that's what we want. That's what we should want as Christian men. We should want to keep in step, following in, in the footsteps and the commandments of God laid out in His Word. You want to make a lasting difference in the life of people, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, Christian man. You need to be growing in the grace of God because God uses his word. The Spirit seeks to take the word and to point us to Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Warriors of Grace podcast. If you enjoyed the show today, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you want to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or search Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find our show on the front page of the website servantsofgrace.org.